everything was going pretty good, right? He was a king. He saved all these people from terrible stuff. They had a kind of a, a big time coronation, if you can call it a coronation, I guess you can. And Samuel yelled at everybody and said, you asked for a king and you all sinned, but I'm going to give you a king anyway. And they repented, but then they still got the king and all of that. So 1 Samuel 13, it's kind of the king stuff really starts going. And there is a, uh, there's, a, there's a concept in scripture Bible study where whenever something's mentioned for the first time, then from then on, you want to, the, the way it happens the first time colors every other time it's going to happen. Like on Easter, how I talked about the first time in the Bible that brothers are mentioned, it was Cain and Abel. So it's like from the outset, brothers are fighting each other. Just the whole nature of brotherhood is fighting until Jesus fixes it, until Jesus repairs it, redefines it. This is kind of Saul becoming king, and he's Israel's first king. And everything that he does, you want to view all of the rest of the kings of Israel. Kind of, He's kind of showing this is how it's going to go for almost all of them. And you can see his struggles, and his struggles will be all of the king's struggles until Jesus makes it all right and perfect and good. Does that make sense? So, so 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. When he reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home. Everybody back to your tent. So basically, he had that big victory, right? They have the big make him a king, inauguration kind of thing. And all these men wanted to come follow him and be his army. And he said, no, we don't need all you guys. We just need, you know, 2,000 with me, 1,000 with my son. All the rest of you guys go home. And so that's what they did. This isn't a new concept. Remember Gideon was sending all kinds of people home when Gideon was going against the Philistines. Remember Joshua? There were some points where Joshua had his army and he was like, look, we're going to leave some. If anybody's afraid, if any, you know, some of you stay behind for this and we'll just take this group to go. He's got such a big army. The other part that's fun is this. This is one of those sections that you want to have a Bible that has maps in it and not just the maps in the back but if you have a good fun study bible that's got maps in line with the scriptures you can look this stuff up because when it says there were 2,000 with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin if you look at this on a map these are less than a mile apart from each other so does that all of a sudden change how you were picturing that? I mean, it changes how I was picturing that. You know, I'm thinking they're like far apart. And it's like saying, you know, Saul had 2,000 guys at the hilltop inn and Jonathan 
had a thousand guys at Wesselman's. They're just they're just right across from each other. They're really I mean they're close enough they could they could send messengers back and forth pretty easy. They can certainly see each other where there isn't cover to hide. So they're close enough to each other that they can see a crowd. And there's a thousand of them in one spot and two thousand in the other. So I'm trying to think of like big event, like fall festival is way too big, right? Think about like a rights football game or maybe drums on the Ohio where you're at drums on the Ohio and there's the marching band, and there's all these people, but then you look over at the practice field and there's another crowd of people over at the practice field, but they're not really with you. They're over there. That's kind of how close these guys are. So there's 2000 over here. There's a thousand over there. They sent everybody else home. Verse three, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear and all Israel heard it. And they said, Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, so you still need your map going here. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. All right, so if, if Saul is at Wesselman's, Jonathan is at the Hilltop Inn, Geba is the Lloyd Expressway, like me, Johnson. I mean, this, we're not talking like distances. We're not, we're, this isn't intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? These are a thousand guys on horses. So actually they didn't even have horses. The, Phil the Hebrews didn't have horses at this point. So imagine you got 2000 guys at Wesselman's, like for real, right there, the bottom of the hill. You got a thousand guys at the hilltop in, they, go up, what is it, T-couple? They attack somebody at Meade Johnson and they wipe out the little, and then they come back down St. Joe up to Wesselman's and they're like, we did it, we defeated him. That's how much land we're talking about. That's what, well, that word got out that Saul, it was really Jonathan, but Saul, it was Saul's army, right? Defeated them, so now all of Philistine the Philistines are mad. So on that, think all of Kentucky. <laughs> it's not really that big, but just think, oh my gosh, huge angry mob. We've been fighting in this little bitty territory. We just made the whole state of Kentucky mad at us. So when he says, everybody, listen, we made everybody, we made all the Philistines angry with us. Come back. <laughs> So basically, they bring all the army back that they sent away. So just put yourself there for a little bit. If you really wanted to fight for Saul, you love God, you love Yahweh, you want to, you know, expand the promised land like you've been reading, you were raised on Joshua. You didn't have anything past Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua and, Ju and Joshua growing up. You didn't even have the book of Judges because it just happened. You want to fight for God? Yes. I'm going to follow God's new king. Yes. And they're like, no, you can go home. 
because we don't need you. Okay, so you go home. Then they win this big fight. Yes, now I can come back. So this kind of, you get the idea that it's unstable. You get the idea that the whole nation is still a little bit unstable. We don't know who our army is. We don't know if we're fighting or if we have too many or if we have too few. They're still trying to figure out what a kingdom looks like. But the whole point of a king was to unite everyone in following God. But it's a little uneven ground. It's a little weird. Verse 5, the Philistines. Oh, you made them mad. Mustered to fight with the Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. Like the sand on the seashore in a multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth Avon. So basically, the whole east side is full of Philistines. I always wanted to say that. I just had to work that in somehow. Huge army. Okay. It's possible to be reading along, and if you're really looking really close, to just get plain confused. Because it says there are 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops. So they have more chariots, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 troops. And there's a whole bunch of biblical scholars that say these numbers are all messed up. That you, no army would have this, that this doesn't make any sense. And there's a bunch of historians that say no army would have this. You would always have more foot soldiers than chariots. And it does sound like, I mean, how in the world are they going to get, get around 30,000 chariots? And Okay, just because I can't skip that. This is a good time to talk about when you read something in the Bible that's confusing. Because this is the second time in this chapter that numbers, some numbers haven't made any sense. Did you catch the other one? Because I just ran over it as fast as I could, hoping you wouldn't notice. <laughs> it is in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he reigned for two years over Israel, this next thing happened. And if you have different Bible translations, all of those numbers are going to be different. They're different from translation to translation to translation. And you might have to look down in your footnotes and it might say something in the footnote that matches somebody else's translation. Well, this section is really funny. There's some weirdness. There's some really old manuscripts that verse one, it says, Saul lived for blank year and then became king. And when he had reigned for blank years over Israel, and then it goes on. And some archaeologists think that they left that blank because they were still trying to figure out how old he was until he became king. And they were still trying to figure that out while they were writing this. Which, that, that just says to me that that, that kind of makes it more real to me. Like, rather than looking at this and saying, you know, these numbers are inaccurate, the Bible must not be true. I look at that and I say, wow, they were really trying to get it right. And they were waiting to figure out, you know, do more research and then we'll fill in that blank later. And that's kind of how it got copied for generations of 
We still got, we're still arguing about when he was born, when he became king, how long he was king, and when this happened. And so we don't put the wrong date. Let's leave it blank until we figure it out. That's kind of cool. There's another theory. This was kind of fun. That one way that you could translate that verse one is Saul lived like a one-year-old. And then he became king. And then later, as he was older, like a king, he reigned over Israel. And it's like, oh, wow, that kind of makes sense because he did kind of live like a one year old. Right. We got to find my dad's donkeys and we're going all over the place. He still lived a little bit like a one year old, even after he became king. But all that to say, if you if numbers or something specific like that, sometimes you'll get into a spot. This will happen later in First Samuel where the names of places will change, but it's the same place. If those things become a stumbling block, or if somebody asks you questions and they just can't get it, put those in a spot. Like, write them down. Mark them down. Don't let that stop your faith. Don't let that be a stumbling block. Get the idea. Get the concept around it. And someday later, you might be reading another section and you'll be like, that's what that meant. That's how those fit together. And it'll, and it'll be clear to you. So always focus on the concept involved. If, if the details get hard, if the details get confusing. Um, I used to have a Shakespeare professor. And he said, if you don't understand Shakespeare, just keep reading. All of a sudden, it'll make sense. You get to the end of Hamlet. And you're like, they're all dead. And it still doesn't make sense. And he's like, well, it's Hamlet. It doesn't make sense. They all die. You're like, oh. <laughs> if you're reading your Bible... Something doesn't make sense. Hold on to it, but don't let it stop you. Don't let it be a stumbling block from you. It, it will make sense at some point. So, ridiculously huge army is the point here. The Philistines are mad. For generations, the Philistines have been ruling over Israel. Remember Gideon? They would come in and steal their harvest. Um, even when Joshua was coming into the promised land, the Philistines were causing them problems. And the Philistines have always been the oppressor. And now all of a sudden, Jonathan and his thousand men have gone and kind of shook their cage and revolted a little bit. And, and they won. So the huge army forms chariots. Israel doesn't have chariots. They got 30,000 chariots, 50 million chariots. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So remember the guy that wanted to join the army? And then he got sent home and then he got called back and then he sees this giant 50 million chariot army coming against him. Now he runs back home. They're hiding in caves and cisterns. Uh, a cistern, they didn't have regular rainfall. In, they still don't in Israel. So if you didn't live near a spring, you would have a big tank at your house or at your city. So when it did rain, that thing would fill up 
with water and that'd be your water tank to last you until the next rain. They're hiding in that so that they won't be caught, they won't be found. They're hiding in tombs. Gosh. So here's Israel. Give us a king that will lead us to fight. God says, I'm your king, but I'll give you a king. He lead, gives them a king who leads them to fight. And even then, now that they have a king, they've won some victories. They're still so afraid that they're hiding in tombs and cisterns, holes in the rock. Some of them are leaving the promised land. How about that? Did you catch that? They're crossing the Jordan. Back. Remember, they came across the Jordan by a miracle, but now they're going back across the Jordan out of their fear. Saul goes to Gilgal. Gilgal, for a long time, if you follow it all through the Old Testament, it was a really important, a lot of place, stuff happened there. It could have become the Jerusalem. It could have been like that if... Um, not for some other little changes, but so Saul's at Gilgal and there are some troops with him, but they're scared. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So this isn't the first time this has happened. We don't get the original conversation, but somehow in here, Samuel told Saul, go to Gilgal, wait for seven days. I'll come and we'll do a sacrifice. Saul is there and he's waiting seven days and people that he is leading aren't waiting for him and they're deserting him and they're leaving. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. He didn't wait the seven days. He was nervous. He was actually on the seventh day. Like Samuel's going to show up any minute and he still doesn't wait. He offers the burnt offering. As soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel shows up. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel says, what have you done? He knows. He knows he's done the sacrifice. The sacrifice has ended. You're supposed to wait. Wait for me seven days. I'll come. I'll do the sacrifice. Saul doesn't wait. Does it? Samuel, what have you done? Saul says, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. You see what he's doing? It's the Garden of Eden all over again. You didn't come. This woman you gave me made me sin. The people were scattering from me. So in the scripture, whenever somebody starts making mistakes, you can see they either confess their sin, right? Jesus told parables where people would fall, you know, the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a tax collector. I'm not even worthy to come in here. Or you've got other people. He did it. She did it. He told me. That woman you gave me. The people were abandoning me. Later on, King David would sin. And whenever he sins, it's really wild to watch his reaction. His usual reaction is, you're right, God. I did this. 
So we have this amazing, beautiful example of how to be convicted by God, how to be corrected by God, how to be put on the right track by God. If your first inclination, when something goes wrong, if your first inclination is to blame somebody else, that's a big red flag of, oh, wow. You know, that person's problem, this person's problem. The problem with these people is, the problem with those people are, like, wait a minute, what about me? When I saw the people were scattering, you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines were mustering. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. I've not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Isn't he noble how he makes it sound so religious? I forced myself to disobey the Lord and be impatient. No, that's basically what he says. Samuel says to Saul, here's the reality of it. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Wow. Right there. In the same spot that last chapter Saul was made king. In this same place. Samuel says the Lord has already picked another king that's going to be somebody that seeks after God, not after this kingdom. So what is Saul? Saul is totally, so not to cause total dismay and everything, right? Saul is totally a politician, right? He's worried about what the people think. He's worried all the people were deserting me. I was worried about losing my kingdom to the Philistines. I was worried about this. I was worried about I had to keep all these people happy. And I knew the way to keep them happy was to inquire of the Lord. He's not inquiring of the Lord, right? He's doing the same thing we had earlier in 1 Samuel. Let's do the religious thing to make the magic happen so God helps us. Let's get the Ark of the Covenant up here. So when they fight against us, they're fighting against our big golden box. And that failed. And this failed too. What God wanted was a king that was after his own heart. How many times will David... Gosh, I keep referring to David like we're going to read David next or something. God, David wanted God. He wanted God even if he didn't get a kingdom. Even if he wasn't king. He wanted God. Saul wanted his kingdom even if he didn't get God with it so here we are right there's stuff that we want I got a wish list like a mile long how many things do we want or expectations do we have and it might not be you know stuff and things it might be the way we want things to be do we want things to be a certain way more than we want God or do we want God no matter how things turn out, no matter how things go? Gosh, to want him. So Samuel leaves, goes up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul. They go and they still go and fight. There's still fighting going on. And it's really wild. The, remember Saul had 
2,000 people and Jonathan had 1,000. Now it says Saul has 600 men. We don't know if that's 600 total, if they went from 3,000 to down to 600, or if Saul's 2,000 went down to 600, but he's lost a ton of guys. Verse 16, Saul and Jonathan, his son, the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. So basically, they're still camping at Wesselman's. All the bad guys are down at Meet Johnson. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. And they all split into three because they got 50 million chariots. They can do that. Another company turns towards Beth Horon. Another company towards the border. There was no... Oh, so they're kind of laying out where they all are. They're, they're all spread out. These giant armies spread up around the little army of Saul. Israel is hiding in rocks and tombs and cisterns and scared. And then you get this little boop kind of interruption in the whole story because you got to know what else is going on here. So in verse 19 is this little aside. There, oh, no, I don't want to go there yet. I want to talk about Saul still. So a lot of people, when they're new to Christianity or they are just really getting a grasp of the Bible, catch themselves saying, the God of the Old Testament is just totally different than the God of the New Testament. The Old Testament God is just angry and warlike and just kills people. And the God of the New Testament is just loving and caring and gracious. Well, there's a reason for that. And his name is Jesus. So in the Old Testament, God gave the law. And he told the people, basically, faith in me is expressed by obeying my law. So if you have faith in God, faith in, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the way you express that faith is following his law, obeying his 613 laws and doing those things. And that's your way of life. And that's how you live. And you don't every day you get up and pray and every night you pray before you go to bed. But you you don't necessarily have a living, vibrant relationship with God. You're not expecting God to actually um, show up in your day to day life. He will in nature. He will in in blessing. He will in circumstances. But your faith in him, you express through the law. Nobody can keep the law. It's, it's, a, it's a hopeless, frustrating thing. So Jesus comes. He realigns everybody with what the real attitude of the law is in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 8. And then he dies on the cross as a sacrifice for the fact that none of us can keep that law. So I want to show my faith but there's a law that I can't keep. It's kind of like, I want to show my kids I love them, but I mess up sometimes. I make mistakes, right? I'm not exactly perfectly skilled at loving my kids, even though I do, and even though I really want to, and I don't want to mess up. So the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk says in the Old Testament, is they'll live by obeying the law. They'll live by fulfilling this law. Jesus pays the price and now 
the, the circumstances and the punishment of the law are taken away in Jesus. And so now we can live sinless. We're, not that I don't ever commit sin, but none of my sins ever count. They don't count at all. They've all counted on Jesus and he took them away. And so now I can live holy. God can actually dwell in me. God can't dwell where there's any sin. But ever since Pentecost, he has dwelled in his people because their sin was taken away. Not because they never did anything wrong, but because of Jesus's death on the cross. And so God in the Old Testament is giving people freedom to choose him and to live according to his law. And they're failing at it. And there's consequences for that. The ultimate consequence is Jesus' death on the cross. And then in the New Testament, since Jesus died on the cross, God's wrath was on him and not on any of us. And so we live on that way. Be careful to not read stories in the Old Testament with a New Testament mindset. If we read about Saul and he was unfaithful to God, he didn't wait the seven days. And so God rejected him as king and picked a new king and goes on. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. So if you do something like Saul did, where you don't wait the seven days like you were supposed to, like you sin, basically, God will not cut you off and move on to somebody else. He has died for your sins once and for all. In Hebrews, it says he was a sacrifice once and for all, for all of us. So don't read Old Testament stuff thinking that the same kind of effects are going to happen to you as a New Testament believer. Because Jesus has died for your sins. Okay, now we can move on. So in all of the Israel, the Philistines are ruling. They are no blacksmiths. What? Verse 19, there's no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. The Philistines said, otherwise they'll make swords and spears. So there's no weapons. There's no fighting weapons. So whenever a Philistine, no, whenever a Hebrew had a shovel or an axe or a pitchfork that got dull, which happened a lot more than our tools do today, they would have to go to the Philistines to have them sharpened. And there was like a day or two's wages to get them sharpened again so that you could go back and work. Now, since the Philistines know this pitchfork could be used against me to kill me, do you think they made them very sharp? Do you think they made them very durable? Now, the Philistines, we know that they had swords, they had armor, they had chariots. Because chariot, you're not going to buy chariots if you haven't already given all of your footmen weapons. So all kinds of Philistines have real war weapons. While the Israelites are basically farmers, angry farmers with their torches and their pitchforks. Everyone that Israelites went down to have sharpened and talks about the price. Verse 22, so on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So whenever they go out to fight, you've got trained army versus angry farmers. Here's the worst thing. 
If I'm going out to fight with my pitchfork, what am I going to work my fields with? What am I, if I'm, if I, my goad, you know, they got an ox goad. It's like a spear with a metal end on it for keeping your ox going in a straight line, but it doesn't really hurt them. If I break that, I'm not going to be able to steer my ox. So they're establishing what a disadvantage they are at, right? They're not fighting men. I mean, they can fight, but it's like brawl fight. It's not war fight. They have weapons that are kind of angry riot weapons, not weapons of war. They're hiding in cisterns and tombs and caves. They're not camped on the side of the hill to show their might. And so I want to, I would finish with that to just leave you in this, gosh, we had this king, right? And he was going to lead everybody together in faithfulness to follow the Lord and to fight the enemies. And everybody's scared. There's only two guys that have weapons. That's the king and his son. And they probably have swords that they inherited, right? They passed down or, I mean, maybe... Maybe some diplomat from the Philistines said, since you're the king, you can have this decorative sword as a sign of being king. I mean, we don't know where it came from, but he's got one. And that's it. And this is, this is where a king has gotten them so far. Well, this week, think through this because it seems distant, but there's stuff that Saul is doing that's affecting Jonathan. We've only mentioned Jonathan a little bit. We're going to really get into Jonathan next week. This is the first mention of Jonathan. The first mention of him is that he went and took on a bunch of Philistines and killed a whole bunch of them and made all of Kentucky angry at Evansville, right? Jonathan is affected because what did Samuel say? Your family is no longer going to sit on this throne. Through no fault of his own, Saul kept Jonathan from becoming king. Just like that. And so our actions have consequences, right? But that doesn't mean it's all over for Jonathan. It doesn't mean he's not, he's lost just like that. And that's what, that's the fun we'll have next week. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have died for our sins. Thank you so much that we can have confidence in you that when we make mistakes, when we make stupid decisions, when when all of the people or our enemies or even ourselves doubt and weaken, that we can have confidence that you will restore us and that you are close to us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful, that we wouldn't be influenced by the people around us, that we wouldn't be influenced by the people we're trying to please, that we wouldn't be afraid, and that we would trust you and seek you and follow you and watch your deliverance play out in our lives, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing number 282 together.
about this week. Trust in the Lord. Don't be afraid of all the circumstances going on. He is close to you. God bless you.